and whoever followed Jesus and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit never regretted it. Never. This is the church. This is what the world needs. God wants to unleash us as his church. He wants to unleash you. He wants to feel the power of his spirit that not only commissions you to his mission, but empowers you to see your life change. And then once you're done doing that, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and find your way to Acts chapter 5. We are in Acts chapter 5. We started Acts 5 last week. We're in the next part of Acts chapter 5 as we're continuing through the series and the whole season that's called Resurgence. So if you're visiting with us this morning, kind of playing a little catch-up, we are taking about a year or so to walk through uh, this season of revisiting the past to take hold of the future, which means on Sunday mornings we're doing this thing called Learn as part of a rhythm of going back to what the church was 2,000 years ago, and then as we look at that and, con and consider that and study that, what does that mean for us today and how we should live and how we should look as a church, reflected from, from what was originally done in the scriptures. And then through our community groups, we're learning this, this rhythm of, of living in community together where we understand and we unpack what we're learning on Sunday mornings so we can actually live it out. And then the third part of that is a thing called uh, love, which is taking practical steps to reach out and connect with people who don't know Jesus to build a relationship as an opportunity for God to demonstrate his love through our lives. This month, you saw the court card on your seat. It says conversation. Just have a conversation to build a friendship with somebody. It may be a neighbor, a coworker, someone you go to school with, just to initiate a conversation. You don't, it's like, I'm not an evangelist. Please don't be an evangelist. Just be yourself. Just be the person that's present that God wants to use to bring his love into their lives. So that's kind of the season that we're walking through. And so this morning we're in Acts chapter 5. We'll look at verses 12 through 16 primarily with some, some reflection on the rest of the chapter. But before we get to the passage, I want us to, to kind of get context. So this morning, uh, this message is, is entitled uh, Unstoppable Force. And the reason I, that, I, that I've, I gave it that title is because what we're going to look at in verses 12 through 16 is a description that Luke writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to describe the things that were happening in the church that were a part of the rhythm of what it meant to be church. And they're things that we sometimes don't see or struggle to see or long to see, but yet aren't really experiencing. But God has called us to be this kind of a church, not just Antioch, but his church in general, his church globally is supposed to be this kind of a church. And in light of what we have experienced this last week, particularly with the fires and obviously with the shooting at Borderline, is that we need to understand there needs to be a shift in our understanding of what church looks like. So let me, let me explain this. I've had lots of conversations with people the last couple days and even this morning, just this, this sense of confusion, like, I don't understand why this shooting would happen, and I don't understand why God wouldn't stop the winds and push back the fire and protect people's property, protect lives. And we always, we always like somehow look to God, like, God, why aren't you doing anything? And somehow if he's, he's helpless or he's, he's busy, whatever it is, we don't know, and so there's this confusion. And one, of the, one person I was talking to in particular, they, they were talking about how, well, you know, the only hope that we have is that Jesus has to return today. Now, we do have hope in eternity, and Jesus is going to come back. But I would say that we have hope before eternity. Because if we don't have hope until eternity, we're in trouble. And here's the way it works. Here's the difference with the way that we have to see things. Because where our prayer is and what we would want God to do is remove evil from the world. That's what we would think God would do. But here's the reality. The same evil that is present in a human being that would go into a bar and shoot it up and take people's lives is the same evil that is resident in every human being. It's in us. It's a part of our sin nature. But here's the reality, is that 
because we have that, God has given us the capacity as human beings. Part of the downside of what God has given us is evil, but he's given us the capacity to choose good or evil. But here's the challenge. We default to what? Evil. We do. So what's the hope now? What's the answer? God is not going to remove evil from the world. He will someday when he returns. He will deal with it once and for all. But you know what he does? He leaves his church in the world to be present in the midst of evil. The last thing, it would break my heart if Jesus were to return and just take his church right out of the evil of the world and leave the world with no hope. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't remove evil. He works in the midst of evil. That's what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to be present. In fact, we're hearing testimonies now already. In fact, some have lost, there were believers who lost their lives at Borderline. There were believers who were part of what was going on there. They were present in what was happening. There were believers who were surrounding the areas. There, there's Christians. What is that? That's the church. That's this unstoppable force that we'll talk about this morning. In fact, the reason I chose unstoppable force, it's actually, I'll have to give credit to it. Earl McManus wrote a book years ago, and he, he entitled the book Unstoppable Force, and, he's and it was a book about the church. But he, in a, I heard in a later interview, that's not what he wanted to call the book. He wanted, he wanted to call the book, but the, the, the publishers didn't want his title. It didn't sound catchy enough. He said the book was supposed to be called The Church That Jesus Dreams Of. And I said, I like that title better. Because there's a church that Jesus dreams of, the church that Jesus died for that's described in the book of Acts that never went away because thousands of years of history have unfolded. It's the same thing. And God wants us to experience this kind of unstoppable force, this kind of power that God wants to bring to us. The, the challenge is not God. The challenge is us having the ability to believe and know that God is powerful just as he was 2,000 years ago. He is today. Three of you are really excited about this, and I'm really excited that you're here today. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. But before we do that, I'll read that, that passage. You and I have to take a quick snapshot of history. You and I usually only see where we live when we live right now. We don't see the big picture. When the church started in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 years ago, it started with approximately 120 people. So relatively a number similar to what's in this room right now. 120 people gathered together. And over the decades and centuries that followed, these are general estimates because you don't have, they didn't take a census of Christians. But as time unfolded, remember Christians from the get-go, the church and Christianity was pushed back on by everybody. The government in the Roman Empire did not like Christians. Jews did not like Christians. Everything was against them for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when you get around, they said around to about 300 AD, this is the estimate, 120 to, this is the estimate, at that time there was between 30 and 50 million Christians in the world. And here's what's crazy. Depending on, this is up for debate, but some historians record that there is an estimate that up to half of the Roman Empire were Christians. Just let that sink in for a moment. What is that? That's an unstoppable force. That is God's power through his people that even a government and a religion and persecution and all the things and death and torture and all that couldn't stop the growth of the church. Why? Because God is more powerful than the culture that we live in. God is more powerful than the pushback that we experience. But hear me as we walk through this today. The unstoppable force of the church is not in the world to plant the Christian flag everywhere we go. It's to be the reflection of God's love and power in the world wherever we go. We're not about planting Christianity. We're about letting people see Jesus in our lives and let them decide about this whole thing called Christianity as they see the author of it, who's Jesus. 
And that's what this is about this morning. So with that in mind, let me read the first uh, few verses of this, the, uh, this section, and then I'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the last part of the section. Starting in verse 12, Luke writes this in Acts 5. He says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is like a porch or an outer court of the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, and they laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Verse 16, the people also gathered from town, the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we're going to stop there. If you go on in the passage, you see a, a pattern that repeats itself many, many times throughout the book of Acts. So Peter and John are presenting the gospel. The power of God is showing up. The church is advancing, and there's pushback. So they get taken into custody. They get thrown into jail. The religious leaders are pushing back on them. And then an angel comes along and releases them out of prison. And so then what happens is they go back to where they were, and they're telling people about Jesus again. And they look for him in prison. They couldn't find him. And so now they get... Now there's this huge uproar because they're doing the very thing they told them not to do. They said, don't talk about Jesus, and they're doing it again. So in all of this uproar, what's happening in Jerusalem, what's happening in this place, is that one wise sage comes along and says something really, really important in verses 38 and 39 in the middle of this. His name is Gamaliel. Listen to what he said. He says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if, if, if it is from God or of God, you will not be able to overthrow or stop them. You might even be found opposing God. I didn't even know if he realizes what he was speaking. He was talking about the power of God through God's people, which is the church and the world. And he's saying, if you fight against it, you will lose. Why? Because you're fighting against God. And that's why the church is supposed to be an unstoppable force in the world. It's supposed to be something that changes the, the, the climate and the culture around it. And that's what's happening in this passage. So what I want to look is five things from this passage that I think push in on different barriers that you and I face all the time when it comes to engaging the world around us. So if you have, uh, have uh, your Bibles, will reference some of the passages here. But the first thing is this, asking this question, do you believe God is unstoppable in the face of human pessimism? Verse 12 says this, it says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Let, let that sink in. There's one word that screams in that verse. Regularly done. Not occasionally, not on special occasions, not every once in a while, but regularly. The part of the rhythm of the early church is what? Signs and wonders that God's power showed up on a regular basis. Why is that important? Because we live in a world of pessimism. A world that says God is not real, God's power is not real, God doesn't do miraculous things, God doesn't show up, God is absent, God doesn't exist, all these things. But for them, the early church, on a regular basis, the dynamic of the supernatural shows up in such a way that even people who are pessimistic can no longer be pessimistic. Why? Because they can't deny the power of God in front of them. Now, in my experience in ministry and as a pastor, I have, I have watched there's a key ingredient that helps people to push past their pessimism, which is, I don't believe all this stuff. It's desperation. It's tragedy. It's suffering. It's difficulties. I have watched people who are the most 
staunch atheists or agnostics who will break in a moment of desperation calling out to a God that they don't, they don't think doesn't exist. Why? Because they realize their whole idea of a God not existing can't be real. There has to be something more. And in our world right now, what, what is our world dying for? Something more powerful than their context or their circumstances or their sickness or whatever it is that they're calling out for help in a moment of desperation. And the church should be present in the midst of that to see God's power come to bear on people's lives. So I've told you a couple of stories before, but I'll mention them again. So I had a, a friend named Lisa who lives up in Oregon. And Lisa, the first time that I met her, I had heard lots about her from her husband, but she had never set foot in our church because she was an agnostic. She goes, like, I'm not into that. I don't believe anything. I don't believe that. That's for my husband. Uh, and he, we prayed for her. He prayed for her. And one day, he suddenly died of a heart attack out of the blue. So this woman who was really against the church and had no category for God finds herself sitting across the table from me, sobbing at the loss of her husband and not understanding why. And if I could even tell early on in our conversation, she was still going to hold her ground, even though she lost her husband and she was at the lowest moment of her life. But as we walked through planning the memorial for her husband, and we walked through that, and she saw the church rally around her. I mean, our church just stepped in and cared for her and loved her and went out of the way for her. And it was amazing. One of the things that I never really do, especially when someone's going through a situation like that, I don't invite them to church. I know it sounds weird. I'm a pastor. But it's just, it's just weird. And so, but guess what? The next Sunday after the memorial, she was there. And then the next Sunday after that, she was there. And the next Sunday after that, and for months and months and months, she never missed a Sunday. And I remember a number of times she would come up to me after service, and she would just sob the whole time. She would cry during worship. She would cry during the teaching. She goes, I don't know what's going on, but I know something's happening here. I'm like, yeah, I know something's happening too. Until four months after she attended church, every Sunday she was at Easter. I've shared this before. It was powerful because her daughter was a believer who went to our church as well, and she was praying for her mom. And so on this Sunday where all of our church gathered in a middle school uh, gymnasium, she was on one side of the gym, and I gave an invitation for people to give their lives to Jesus. She jumps to her feet, and she starts walking towards the front. And she's coming from one side of the gym, and her daughter on the far other side of the gym sees her, and she jumps up, and she starts running. And they meet each other. It's like Hollywood orchestrated moment, right? Like music's playing, lights go down, right? Literally right in the center aisle of these chairs set up in this gym, they embrace. And I'm watching everybody who knows the story just start sobbing. She gave her life to Jesus. That woman got remarried to a great guy who's following Jesus, and now she's following Jesus with her life. Michelle, who is a self-proclaimed atheist, found her way in a moment of desperation into a women and children's shelter in Newburgh, Oregon, because she had nowhere else to go. She made the, just, just the declaration the first night she was in. She said, don't tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear about God. I don't believe he exists. All I know is I can't live on the street anymore. I need my kids with a roof over their head, so I'm in here, so just leave me alone. And this was run by Christians in our community. And so every day, they loved her, but they left her alone. They fed her kids, they housed them, they cared with them, they played with them, and they left her alone for months and months and months until one day, she walks into our church, and she says to me, I don't get it. She goes, the only thing I can understand, there has to be a God. Nobody who, who would do what these people do for somebody they don't even know. And I said, you're right, there is a God. And I said, there's a conspiracy going on. He loves you, and he's orchestrated this situation to get your attention. And three weeks later, I stood in the water next to a guy who was baptizing her. She gave her life to Jesus. But I'm an atheist. I don't believe that. In a moment of desperation, her pessimism is overwhelmed by the hunger and desire there has to be something beyond this. The world is dying for an answer. We are the unstoppable force. We're the presence of Jesus in the world. We should be present for people who are dying for answers. And especially now. 
especially now in the midst of a shooting and, and unthinkable fires and what's going on. The church should be present. Not the church in the building and the church in its gathering, but the church in its scattering. The church is more powerful when it's scattered than it's when it's gathered. When we're three or 400 people scattered, we're way more powerful than we are when we're all gathered in one place because we're present where God wants us to be. This is the second thing. Do you believe God is unstoppable in the face of cultural resistance? It says in verse 13, it says, none of the rest dared uh, join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The, the, the phrase, the rest, is an actual reference to people who didn't know Jesus yet. So if you remember, if you were here last week, the first part of chapter 5, we all want to take out of our Bibles because it freaks us out. You know, Ananias and Sapphira were dishonest about the money they were giving, and God took them right out of the equation because he was pres preserving his church, because he was keeping them from going down the road of hypocrisy again. And so there's this fear and this reverence and this respect for God that stood up. The power of God's showing up, and the fear of God is there. And so there's people who are, they're not repelled. This is what's crazy. God's power shows up through Ananias and Sapphira and their uh, unfortunate circumstances, but the church grows as a result. Why? Because people were drawn to God's power. They were, there was this like magnetic pull to what God was doing, but there was also like, wow, should we join them? Should we not? Because there's something powerful going on there. So what was going on here, and this is what you and I struggle with today, there is cultural resistance all around us. The church is not irresistible anymore. The church is not the place that people are drawn to anymore. In fact, for many people in our culture, it's the place you run from, right? Because in our culture today, the majority, not all, but the majority of people who understand what they think they understand about Christianity and the church get it from the media or they get it from the worst case scenario. And what do they hear? They hear what the church stands against, not what the church stands for. They hear what all the sins and all the judgment that comes out of people who represent, but they don't hear the power of God, the forgiveness and God's grace and what Jesus has done for them. They don't get the good news. They only get the bad news. But what happens when they get the good news? What happens when they realize the power of God is present? That what happens is the cultural resistance begins to subside. What would it be like to not be marginalized anymore? What would it be like that when you mention that you're a Christian, that if you're in a completely uh, non-Christian circle, people don't look at you weird? Like, oh, you're one of those. What if they actually are excited the fact that you're one of those? Because they realize that you have something to offer. What if the church was known for what it did in its community, not what it doesn't do? What if it was known for the grace it extends, not the judgment that it passes on people? What if it was known for that? That's the church that Jesus dreams of. That's the church Jesus died for. That's the church that Jesus wants. So let me tell a story about another church. I know we're doing a lot of great stuff, and there's great churches in Simi Valley and our community doing great stuff, but let me tell you what I think it looks like when a, when a church has really gotten past the cultural resistance. So many of you know Bethel Church up in Reading. Most people know Bethel because of the, the incredible signs and wonders that have come out of that church and what God's doing there. But I think there's something even more powerful to the culture around than the power of God showing up in miracles, which is amazing. It's the stance that Bethel Church has taken about how they love their city. See, you know if a church has become the church that Jesus dreams of because if a church closes and the city feels the loss of the church, the church was what it was supposed to be. But if a church closes up shop and nobody knows the difference in the city, then we never got to be what God wanted us to be. So Bethel, they've made commitments over the years to do incredibly crazy things. So a number of years ago, their leadership was meeting, and one had been talking to some of the city officials, and they realized that every year the city was coming up short on money, and some important programs were going to get cut the next year. And so when this leader at Bethel said they brought it to their elders and to the leaders and said, this can't be in our city. 
So this is the decision that the church made. They made a decision to tithe to their city. Every dime that goes into Bethel Church, 10% of that goes to the city of Reading. No strings attached. Some are like, oh, you're giving the government money? No, you're giving it to the city of Reading, and they've used it for incredible things. I had somebody tell me as well, there also was another incident where they were going to have to, the city of Reading was going to have to let go of four police officers, and Bethel stepped in and said, no, we'll fund their salary for a year. Another situation where there, there's a community center, it's the only community center in the city of Reading, and it was in disrepair, the city couldn't afford to run it anymore, and it was the only kind of venue where people could gather in the city that was a larger venue, other than Bethel itself. So Bethel approached the city and said, hey, can we help you? They said, well, we can't afford to run it anymore, we're just going to shut it down. They're like, you can't do that. It's, it's for the community, and so what did Bethel do? They said, we'll take it over. We'll renovate it, and for out of... They, out of their own money, Reading spent a million dollars renovating a community center, and then they run it for the city for free. All their sound techs, all their media people, all their video people, all their lighting people, they run for secular concerts. They run it for the city of, of Reading. Last year when the fires hit Reading, they did a fundraiser, and the fundraiser for, was for people who lost homes. And so instead of defaulting to going to FEMA and the government, people lined up at Bethel Church to go in and actually have money handed over to them that were given from the people in the church and from people around the world to say, hey, we care for you. And so thousands of dollars were given to individuals who lost homes. I share all that because that's what the church is supposed to be. That's a beautiful thing. If you were to go to Reading, depending on who you talk to, but the majority of people in Reading, when you talk about Bethel, they have a positive response to the church. Why? Because they realize if Bethel were not there, the city of Reading would be in a world of hurt. Ask the question, if, if Antioch closes up tomorrow, which it's not going to because it's the church, but would the city of Simi Valley know anything different? I'd hope the city would feel something because there's something that we're doing in our city that actually makes a difference. You guys are really quiet this morning. I know there's a lot to think about. Third thing, do you believe God is unstoppable in the face of, this is what, the, I'll use this term, declining conversions? Let me explain by that. Well, let, me, let me read verse 14. So this is what was going on 2,000 years ago. It says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that means people are getting saved all the time. It's a normal occurrence. It's happening ongoingly. And so it, people will call it revival, but I don't necessarily think it's revival. I think it's just normal Christianity. It's normal church. People are coming to faith constantly in multitudes. Now, when you and I outside, we won't look outside our country yet, but when we look at our culture, we have movements where we think, okay, well, there was the Jesus movement or there was this revival. Lots of people coming to Christ. But now when you look across the landscape of the West or for the United States particularly, we don't necessarily see that, do we? We don't see people coming in droves. Now, we can fill stadiums right now with crusades, but, but when we actually look at the raw numbers of how many people who didn't know Jesus actually came to Jesus, it's far lower than maybe we've seen in, in history. Is that supposed to be just, you know, God's taking a break on salvations for a while? He's resting? No, I don't think so. I think God wants that to be a part of there's supposed to be people coming to faith all the time. And we're not just talking about in a gathering on Sunday morning. In fact, we were primarily talking about through our lives that we're reaching people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, people that we go to school with. Those, those people are encountering Jesus through our lives, and so they're coming to faith, and they will find their way into a church, but that's really more of the pattern of what we see in the world today and what should be happening. But, but I want you just to, to think about what, what our equation or our, kind of our recipe for what 
makes people come to faith is actually usually the opposite of what is biblical and what we see in human history. For example, we would love in the comfort of our context for God to come and bring revival. People coming to Jesus, people repenting, the church growing, all these great things. But we want to do it in the middle of comfort. We do. But when you read church history and you read the Bible, it doesn't come in the middle of comfort. It comes in the middle of discomfort. It comes in the middle where the church is marginalized, which right now, that's the context that we're in. It comes when people are pushing back on Christianity. That's when people come to faith more than when things are easy and comfortable. How do we know this is true? You look at throughout the world. China is the best example right now, our modern-day example. And you've heard me talk about China because I've been there a few times. But, you know, China a number of years ago went through what was called the Cultural Revolution, which the government, as it became communist, ran out all the Christians. At least they tried to. All foreign missionaries were out. And so they thought, once and for all, we've dealt a blow to Christianity because this is a communist nation. We don't believe there is a God. But then there was obviously a remnant left. So estimates, these are general estimates of population. So in 1980, there was an estimated 2 million Christians in China. By the year 2000, that number was up to 75 million. Now remember, this is in a nation that's well over a billion people. Estimates today are is that somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 million people are Christians in China. Now wait a second, how does that work? The government says it's illegal to be a Christian and, and, and can per, uh, profess your faith to somebody else. It's illegal to have a church that is not a part of the government-controlled church, which is a very small percentage of people who go to those churches. In fact, they've cracked down the last 18 months where they were starting to expand in freedom, and now it's gotten worse. They're actually tearing church buildings down that, that some of the house churches had built. They're ripping crosses down in certain provinces where they allowed. They're cracking down again. In fact, even foreigners coming in, like my dad and I haven't been able to go into China because it's now it's actually unsafe. Why is that? Because the, they realized, oh my goodness, where did all these Christians come from? So the very thing that got the government into a, a problem in the first place, they're doing again. And about a year ago, one of the house church leaders made this public statement. I was shocked when he said this. Everyone's like, oh, we're praying for you. We just feel bad for you. He goes, oh, don't feel bad for us. He goes, this is a good thing. And we're like, whoa, wait, persecution's a good thing. He goes, we need this. He goes, we've gotten soft as the church. And I can guarantee you right now, because there's pushback by the government, more and more people are coming to know Jesus in China to the point where estimates are pretty close that China has more Christians than the United States has now. Crazy. Now, you're thinking, what, Pastor John, should we pray for persecution? Should the government come after it? No, I don't pray for that. But in the midst of crisis, in the midst of upheaval, in the midst of disruption of life, the gospel spreads in people's lives. So, for example, what we're going through right now, God wants to work in the midst of tragedy. God wants to work, work in the midst of loss of life and property. God wants to work. Why? Because our lives have been disrupted. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, about how God works in the middle of that. Fourth thing. Do you believe God is unstoppable in the face of physical sickness? So verse 15. Just, I know, hear me, if you've, if you've re read the Bible a lot, times, sometimes you read through verses like this, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get that, that was the Bible. But just listen to this. It says, so they, they even carried out the sick into the streets, and they laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow would fall on some of them. Let's just be honest. Is that crazy? Yeah. Now, for us, what's going on in the text there? Well, in, in that day and age, there was this belief that 
your shadow was an extension of your physical body. So anything that your shadow, t shadow touched, it would be the equivalent of you physically touching. So for them, they're thinking, if Peter's just his shadow, if he walks by and his shadow touches me, it's like he's reaching out and touching me, and maybe I'll be healed. So it was a little bit of superstition mixed in with faith. But you know what's crazy is God actually used that mix of superstition and faith to heal people. Why? Because there was such a strong hunger and desire for physical healing because people were so desperate that God used that as a means to actually heal people. So we don't go out and practice it. So don't go out and try to create your shadow as the healing agent for God to work unless God wants to use that. But don't, don't take that as something that's prescriptive for us. It's something that's descriptive of what happened. But what's going on there is that there's, there's physical sickness that's being addressed in the lives of people. As we said earlier in the first verse, in verse 12, it's a regular occurrence. It's going on. And this is the things that we've been talking about as a church as we walk through the book of Acts. We've been praying for healing and the testimonies of people being healed in our church and out of our church. It's been amazing. But it starts to become a part of our normal kind of life, the rhythm of life. We are in a four-square church. We are part of what's called International Church of the Four-Square Gospel, which was birthed in 1923 through a woman named Amy Simple McPherson who was leading basically a healing revival. God was saving people, but God was healing people in amazing ways, and that's what caused Angelus Temple to be birthed in Los Angeles, and it was amazing, and one of the things that always caught me, now when I was growing up, of course, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not at old. I was not alive when Amy was alive, okay? But, but what happened is that, that if you've not been to Angelus Temple, it's the mother church of our movement, and, and it has multiple balconies, and when I was a kid growing up, and we would go to Angelus Temple for various things, if you went up to the top balcony in one of these hallways, and I don't know why they relegated it to some obscure location in the building, but there was a display case, and here's a picture of it. There's a display case that was there, and what was in that case were the things that people left behind once they were healed when they came to a service at Angelus Temple. So you see crutches, and you see braces, and you see a, almost a full body cast. Now, just think about this for a moment. You walk into a service with a full body cast on. You're not at the doctor's. Can you imagine what it took to get that off the person once they were healed? That's a lot of faith, isn't it? But there's just this testimony. I remember as a kid, I would go up there. I would just stand there as long as I could and tell my parents, like, come on, we got to go. And I would read the plaques, and I would just be in awe. God, you did this. And then there was part of me, God, do you still do this? Why is this up in a case in the upper balcony and not front and center on the stage for people to be reminded that the power of God is for today? That's a reminder for us. We're a part of a movement, and by the way, beyond being in part of Foursquare, physical healing in God's power is a normal part of Christianity, not just Pentecostalism, not just the Foursquare movement. It's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. It wasn't relegated to the first century. It was part of the dynamic of the church that Jesus dreams of today that the power of God would be present in physical healing in people's lives. And there's a one final note. Do you believe that God is unstoppable in the face of demonic activity? Yes. So verse 16, listen to what's happened. It says, people also gathered from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So afflicted means they were disturbed or they were tormented that they were suffering, there was a continual annoyance in their life. And so, so there's obviously, there's this spiritual reality of that there is, there are, there's reality then, it's a reality now. There is demonic activity in the world today. There are people that are possessed by demonic influences in their life that need to find freedom. Now, in our context, we don't seem to run into them as frequently as those do outside the West, where there's a far more, a deeper understanding of the spiritual realm than I think that we have. 
But I, I, I think this is important for what, what's supposed to be a part of the church is that, now hear me on this because I want to make sure you, you hear me. I don't misspeak or you don't mishear what I'm going to say. That I think from, from what we can tell from biblical record and I think from the way that things can be diagnosed, that mental illness is a real reality for lots of people in our culture. It's, it is. It's a real challenge and issue for people. In fact, we know that we are dealing most likely with mental illness of what happened at Borderline. But here's the thing that I'm convinced. Not all mental illness is connected to demonic activity, but I convinced some of it is. Now, am I claiming that what happened at Borderline was motivated? I don't know that because I'm convinced also that medication and therapy can be a way to find ways to navigate and find freedom from mental illness. So hear me. In fact, we partner with NAMI who was here last year, and in fact, David Deutsch, who's the, the county director, will be here in February to talk about the reality of mental illness and how do you care for a loved one and how do you navigate mental illness? Because God has given us medication, God has given us therapists that help that, but what if there are some people walking around in our world today who are experiencing the symptoms of mental illness and the, result, the reason is something inside of them is driving that, and it's not heaven, it's hell. And God has placed you in a place where maybe you're the one to pray for them and yes, cast a demon out of somebody to bring freedom to their lives. So let me give you some biblical evidence of why I think this is true. Listen, you, just, you don't have to turn there, it's not gonna be on the screen. So this is, this is a story recorded for us in Mark chapter five. So in Mark chapter five, verses three through five, listen, this describes, this is how it describes this man. It says he lived among the tombs no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man was being tormented, but no one could help him. Everyone was afraid of him. But then he has this encounter with Jesus. And after Jesus encounters him and casts the, the demon out of him, listen to how it describes him in verse 15 of Mark 5. It says, And then they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had legion, which means many, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Why? Because this is a guy we couldn't offer help to. This is a guy that we couldn't do anything about. This is the guy that we ran in fear from. And Jesus shows up and he casts a demon out of him. Now he's sitting, I love how Mark records it, in his right mind. Don't tell me that's not mental illness. How many people in our culture long to be in their right mind, but they're not? So I say that to say this. Maybe there's somebody who you need to pray for that has mental illness. And if they don't have a demonic demon, don't force it, okay? Maybe they need to go down the road of medication or therapy. But maybe in your prayer, God will reveal to you there's something more going on here than meets the eye. Maybe there's something in them that needs to be set free out of them so they can experience the freedom. Maybe God has positioned you next to that person, that neighbor, that difficult person that nobody can help because he wants to be an unstoppable force through your life to touch that person's life. That's the church. That's what we're supposed to be. And let me close with this, because I am convinced that the church that Jesus dreams of is supposed to be alive and well today. And Antioch, and Cornerstone, and Abundant Life, and Discovery, and New Heart, and every church in our city, and in Moore Park, and Thousand Oaks, and Agoura Hills, and Newberry Park, and all of the nation is supposed to be the church that Jesus dreams of. 
So we're not saying, okay, how do we recreate that? We can't recreate that. How do we surrender to be that kind of church and live that kind of life? I'll tell you in a moment. But let me just tell you, what, what would it be like? Just imagine with me for a moment. Let me just read some statements. What would it be like? What, what could we imagine a church where human pessimism and doubt were replaced by belief and faith because God's power was a regular part of their experience? What would that be like? That it isn't every so often, but it happens all the time. We, could we imagine that a church that was respected by the culture around it because it was known more by the power of, of, the power of God and his love than the hatred and judgment of man? What if the media said, man, we just can't believe how much churches love the world around them? Imagine, can we imagine a church where followers of, or those who are not followers of Jesus became followers of Jesus more than ever before than it has ever been recorded in human history, and it happened in our lifetime. Happening in China right now, why not our country? Can you imagine a church where so many people were being healed that trust in God and praying to him became the first option instead of the last resort? I know churches like that where people, before they went to the doctor, they stopped by the church to get prayer just to see, God, you're going to heal me? My dad did that before he went through cancer treatment. God chose to go through surgery and radiation and all that, but he prayed and they contended, God, heal. God, you're going to heal another way. But what if that became the first option we prayed for? Imagine a church where people were liberated from mental illness that was sparked by demonic activity, that people were finding themselves in their right mind because of the church. Anybody want to be a part of that kind of church? Let me conclude with this. This journey that we're going through, through the book of Acts, in a good way, you hear this phrase, it's wrecking us. It's a good thing, but sometimes we don't want to be wrecked because we want to be just okay. We just want to be fine. We just don't want to change. We just want to kind of keep going along. When you get exposed to the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't be the same person anymore. And that's what's happening in our church. But as I've been reading through the book of Acts, which by the way, just you know, I cheated, I read ahead. Okay, I've read the rest of the book. I know how it ends. But I've read it over and over and over again. And there's a number of things that always emerge out of what I'm reading of, of things that they had that sometimes we miss. The first one is I'm convinced every single believer that was a part of the first church was filled with the Holy Spirit and power. They lived a spirit-filled life every single day. They had to. They were desperate for God's power in life. And that was normal Christianity. And so they contended for it. And they believed for it. And that's what we've been praying for. And I've been amazed to watch people's experiences with the Holy Spirit. Some people are like, I've been praying and nothing's happened. We're going to keep contending. Why? What is our responsibility? Ask, seek, knock, and let the good God, the God who is the Father of us all, give us the good gift of the Holy Spirit. We keep contending because we need Him. We need his power in our life. You know the second thing that they had that sometimes we miss? They had fear for God. They had fear of God. They had the power of God, but they feared God in a way that was reverent and respectful. And that means that, that their lives were not their own. It wasn't that God was an additive or a supplement, that God was central to their lives. That's what we read in the first part of Acts 5. There was fear and awe and respect, and that the result was what the church exploded. Why? Because there was a sense that how big God is. And then, you know, one thing I just keep, and I want to get away from it, but I, you know what's funny? It's the same thing simultaneously to multiple conversations in our church and what I've been reading in the book of Acts. One of the things that they have that we miss all the time is, you know what they lived throughout the book of Acts? They lived a disrupted life, constantly. Life was never normal again once the Holy Spirit came and the church was birthed. 
Once Jesus went back to the Father, none of them, read through the book of Acts, they're living in constant disruption. That means that they're constantly being persecuted or they're being pushed back on or they're being judged or they're being marginalized or being attacked by the government or they're being pushed back by Jews. This is happening. But what's happening in the middle of all this disruption is the truth and the power of the gospel is being spread through the lives of people as they flee for their lives to places like Antioch. As they're fleeing, people are going, why are you running? Well, I'm running because they're trying to kill me. Why are they trying to kill you? Because I've chosen to follow Jesus. Would you like to follow him too? That's what was happening in the book of Acts. Constant disruption. Why is that important for you and I? We don't like disruption. Can we just admit that? In fact, just one of the things that really caught my attention this week with, with the shooting and the multiple interviews with all kinds of people, those who were in the bar, those who were around it, the same thing, I can't, I can't count how many times this was said. It's not supposed to happen here. It's not supposed to happen in Thousand Oaks. Why? Because Thousand Oaks and Simi Valley and Moore Park and Westlake Village is the safest place in the country. What is being said when somebody says that? I want you to understand something. If it's not supposed to happen here, it's not supposed to happen anywhere. It's not okay to happen somewhere else. It's not okay to happen in Pennsylvania or in Charlotte, North Carolina or wherever there's been mass shootings. It's not okay anywhere. What is the hope that we have? Here's the reality. We make an assumption about our lives that we take for granted, but we think it's the answer that makes us happy, but sometimes it's the very thing that makes us miss God. We value routine and comfort and schedule, and it becomes our idol. Let me just give you my own example. This week was disruptive. Now, for other people, it was more than disruptive. It was devastating. People lost their lives in a bar. People lost their lives in fire. People lost homes, lost loved ones. It's been devastating. But for most of us, honestly, most of us, it's been disruptive. And we've even been challenged with being disruptive and inconvenienced. I was at the church here yesterday. And Saturday's my day where, no, for the most part, nobody's here. I had a counseling appointment. And once it was done, um, I have this block of time where the church is empty and I can focus because I'm in a master's program and I do homework and I study for today. I just get all the things that didn't get done and I have this block of time. I got here about 10.30. At 10.50, the power went out. I'm like, oh! So then, of course, you know, go on, find out with Edison what's going on, you know, what's the problem. Of course, there's a million power outages everywhere right now. So I went through my counseling appointment. The power's still off. I'm like, okay. An hour and a half later, it's got to come back on. I checked, and then it says on this little thing on the website, it says, power may be restored by Monday at 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock. I'm like, great. So I go into my dark office and find myself fresh. I'm like, I got no Wi-Fi. I got no electricity. And I'm like, I got stuff to do. And then I stopped. God said, really? You're upset about Wi-Fi. Why don't you just drive the 10 minutes home to where your power's on and you have Wi-Fi? People have lost lives and homes and loved ones, and you're just being disruptive, but they've been devastated. So in that moment, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to be upset about being disruptive because I realize in the disruption is when God works. That's why God hasn't removed evil from the world. Why? Because his people are present in the midst of dis disruption and devastation that evil causes to give hope to a world that is dying for it. So for us, it's okay if we live in a place that isn't called the safest city in America anymore. 
it's okay to live in a place that actually might be classified as dangerous. Why? Because in the danger and this disruption is where God shows up to care for people who are hurt and victimized and wounded and need hope. The last thing we are to be is a, is a, is a church isolated in suburbia in safety. We're supposed to be in the middle of brokenness and devastation because that's where Jesus was and that's what he calls us to be. We are the unstoppable force in a world that is dying for hope. Can you make a commitment with me today that we can make that decision in our life? That when we're inconvenienced, when we're devastated, we don't take the role of the victim of our society and our culture. Why? Because we serve the victor. We may be victimized, but we're not victims. Why? Because even at our lowest moment, who do we have? We have Jesus. And Jesus sustains us. And Jesus helps us and Jesus protects us and Jesus is present with us and he is in control of all things and if we have Jesus somebody else near us probably needs him and that's why we're there so I'm going to pray when I close and we're going to now go out and live as an unstoppable force but I want you to see your neighborhood and your world and of all things we need to be the church in the world we need to love the people around us and this is why as a church Antioch why we keep pushing out 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 not in 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 the world needs us we have Jesus and they need him. So our lives are about bringing him to them. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we truly want to be the church that you dreamed of when you started this thing 2,000 years ago, when you came into the world and you died for the sins of all people, when you rose from the dead and you broke the power of sin and death and you were setting people free, you put in motion the, this, Lord, all of this season that we're in, this age of time that we're in, where you're giving the world an opportunity to choose you and not choose evil and not choose sin. And you've given us that freedom. And so, Lord, we thank you that those of us who are gathered, Lord, who have made that decision to choose you, to choose life, to choose forgiveness, to lay our lives down for you, to give our lives over to you. But, Lord, there's so many around us that have yet to experience that freedom. So I pray, Lord, now, as you did 2,000 years ago, would you give us the power of your spirit? Would you give us the fear of God would you give us a heart that embraces the disruptions and the devastation around us so that we might be that light, that we might be that hope, that we might bring Jesus, we might bring you into every circumstance so that people might know there is hope beyond the evil and the devastation of our world. So Jesus, this week, fill us with your spirit. Give us the courage to be who you call us to be so that not only are we the church that you dreamed of, but we live the life that you dreamed of and died for. In your name, Jesus, amen. Let's go be an unstoppable force. Let's go for it.